Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 5. Let's read our text. Peter writing, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, he writes, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the power, I'm sorry, for, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And they all said, Amen. First Peter is written by the Apostle Peter himself. It is being dictated to a man named Silas, or here we have him as Silvanus. Peter dictated the books in which he was the one that they used as the resource. Mark is the exact same way. John Mark wrote as Peter dictated to him the, the accounts of Christ and the gospel of Mark. And he is writing this letter to those Christians who are suffering in the regions of Asia Minor. They're suffering under the hand of persecution from Caesar Nero, who has blamed the Christians for a fire that started in Rome in 64 AD that wiped out a large portion of the Roman city. Later on, it's discovered that it was Nero himself who started this fire. But when the Senate looked at Nero and started to see that he was possibly guilty for this uh, act of arson, he then looked for a scapegoat, found Christians who were already in Rome's eyes in a state of rebellion against Rome. And it wasn't an act of rebellion in the sense of taking up arms against Rome, but what the Christians would not do was bow the knee to Caesar and acknowledge him to be God. Caesar put out coins, Caesar Nero put out coins at that time that stated on them with a picture of himself, Caesar Nero, and at the bottom it said, Son of God. 
Many of the cities in which Peter wrote this letter to had within them temples built on the statue of Caesar Nero to be worshipped as a deity amongst many deities there in the Roman culture. But Christians and their monotheistic understanding of God would not bow their knee to Nero. And as a result, they began to suffer persecution. They began to create attention to themselves because they were often being arrested for their refusal to worship Nero. And these Christians were alone, for they were Jewish people who had then become Christians in Acts chapter 2 and now were scattered abroad due to persecution in the Roman territory of Asia Minor, and they were as exiles from their homeland. Their national identity had been taken away from them. Often they lived in poverty because their wealth had been seized from them due to their faith in Jesus Christ. So Peter writes this letter to them to encourage them to stand firm in the grace of God during the storm of persecution that has come upon them. Each and every one of us as Christians, I will guarantee that at one time or another, you are going to stand within a storm of life, be it in the form of persecution, be it in the form of a trial, trouble, or tribulation, you are going to experience difficulties as a Christian. I guarantee it. The key to this is to be able to stand during those difficulties, to allow God to use that difficulty for two purposes. Number one, through that difficulty, Peter has shown us and demonstrated for us several times that in that difficulty, God is using it like a scalpel in the hand of a, a surgeon chipping away at you and taking away the drouse, which is the uh, impurities and allowing the gold to be refined that is there left within you. He is using it to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And number two, Peter says it's an opportunity to show the world around you that your God is real and that he is authentic and that you are following him and that you believe so much in him that you're willing to sacrifice your own life for him. And so Peter sees these opportunities of suffering just as that, an opportunity it's not an obstacle in, in your way of obtaining a certain quality or a manner of life, but it is a moment in time where God is working in you such an incredible work and at the same time working through you that you may be a witness and a light to those around you. I've seen it in this church. I've seen some of you go through horrific times, been there with you through it, and I've seen God give such a peace, such clarity and sober-mindedness. Often I've been told that in those times people have experienced God like never before and also will confess that they didn't understand what was truly precious and what real priorities were until they entered into that trial. God working in and through them in a moment of suffering in a moment of difficulty. 
a promise that one has made concerning a Christian is that either you're going into a trial, you're in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial in your Christian life. And this letter is written to those suffering for the name of Jesus Christ specifically, but in general, to those who are experiencing difficulties in life. He says, stand firm in the grace of God. To do so, you must know who God is and understand your relationship with him. You must understand the power and the ability that he has given you through the Holy Spirit and the grace that he lavishes upon you to be able to do those things that you never thought you were capable of doing. It is this grace that Peter now encourages these sweet, dear saints to stand within. He's writing as one who has experienced this problem for himself. As you know, Peter was the one who promised the Lord, hey, you know, Lord, if everybody else denies you, Lord, you know, if Jeff denies you, if Chris denies you, if Brian back there denies you, I will never, ever, 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 it's emphatic in the Greek, ever, 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 ever deny you. Jesus' reply in the Greek, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me this night three times. No way, Lord. Ain't happening. Chris might. Brian, eh, good chance. Jeff, eh. but I will never, never will I deny you. And we all know what happened, right? Confronted by great adversaries such as a little girl. He denied the Lord. And at the last moment of his denial, the Bible says that he turns and he locks eyes with his Savior. Oh, conviction. And now Peter's writing to these people, don't go that route. It's not worth it. It says that after Peter denied the Lord that he wept bitterly. He was so broken. He was so down. He felt that he had failed so, so immensely that nothing with God would ever be right again. And then he experienced the grace of God. Where the angels specifically told those at the tomb, please go find Peter. The Lord has an appointment with him. And when he met the risen Lord, he was asked three times by the Lord, do you love me? And Peter was grieved in, the, in his heart that Jesus had to ask him three times, of course I love you, of course I love you, of course I love you. Of course, mirroring the three times, undoubtedly reminding Peter of the three times that he had denied him. And then Jesus said, go and feed my flock. Go and love my flock. And as one elder to another, he begins this fifth chapter, writing from that experience, not of pure victory, but of failure, praying that no one would ever again deny the risen Lord, praying that in our times that we are confronted by the world, that we would stand firm, not in and of ourselves, but in the grace of God, 
and allow the individual to know that is coming against us that we truly believe who God is. We truly believe that he is the God that he is and we follow him and we will resist the persecution and the temptation to deny him in the wake of that persecution. Now he writes to elders in this last chapter to begin with in the first five verses. It would be easy for some of you who are not an elder within a church. An elder in the church is a pastor, an overseer. It is a position that God calls a man to. They must fulfill the requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the character qualities that they must possess before they could become an elder. And so you may say, well, I'm not an elder and this really doesn't apply to me. But I would want to ask you to rethink that for a moment. Because within it, Peter is telling them what is important. Qualities of an elder. And they are the exact ones that Jesus told him when asking him three times if he loved him. It is an elder, a good elder, a true elder, a good shepherd or under shepherd loves the people and will feed the people. The word shepherd is used there to, de to describe the heart attitude of the man in whom God is looking to pastor his people. You are God's people. He is our chief shepherd. You are all accountable to him. My job as an under shepherd is to do two things to love you as he would love you, and to feed you like he would feed you. And that is by teaching you the word of God. And he goes on to say, let's look closely at these words. He exhorts the elders among them, that is, means encouraging with a command. These elders who who have been selected by God, who have fulfilled the qualities that God has laid out, and he addresses them as a fellow elder. Though he was an apostle, one of the 12, he could have shown himself and demonstrated himself in that way, but he, in humility, sees himself equal with these men. And not only is he an elder, but he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ personally. And as, well, he is a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, that is the hope of heaven and the return of Jesus Christ. He then instructs them in the exhortation to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then he goes on to tell us how that shepherding should look. Exercising oversight. I am to oversee the body of Christ. Pastor Joe is to oversee the body of Christ. That is our job. Not under compulsion, he says. I don't do it out of obligation, but I do it willingly because this is what the Lord has called me to do on your behalf. There is a degree of authority that comes with this position that is recognized by God and should be recognized by the body of Christ. But this willingness will then lead me to serve you and to minister to you as God would have you. God wanted his people to be loved. God wanted his people to be fed in a healthy manner. Going back to the book of Ezekiel chapter 34, fascinating chapter. Read it when you get some time. 
God constantly indicted the religious leaders of Israel for not properly representing him to the people and therefore consistently calling out their corruption and their hypocrisy. We know that the only individuals that Jesus ever raised his voice to in the Gospels, you can make a case for Peter, but the ones that he experienced the most difficulty with was the religious leaders of that time who were pure hypocrites. They were supposed to have a heart for the people. They were supposed to love the people. They were supposed to be feeding the people. But to them, the people were simply a means to an end. The financial corruption in, the, in that time was immense. It was so bad that at times as such as Passover, the priests were instructed by the religious leaders to examine every animal that was brought by a person who had pilgrimaged to Jerusalem from a faraway land. And before that animal could be offered unto God, it had to be inspected by the priests. So the religious leaders stated that, listen, we want you to reject every animal that is presented to you. And then we want you to offer to sell them an animal that we have pre-approved for a profit. So as these people would travel 50, 100 miles to come to Jerusalem to worship there at Passover, they would bring the lambs to the priests only to find out that this lamb that they had cared for for the entire year watched over so there was no spot nor blemish upon it. It was perfect. The priest would say, I'm sorry, we cannot accept that. Well, I've just traveled 100 miles. I'm sorry, we, we can't accept that. Well, what am I going to do now? Where can I get one? Ah, <laughs> we just happen to have some pre-certified lambs over here that you can buy for an astronomical price. And so the people would often feel compelled and obligated to do so. They wanted to honor God. They wanted to do the right thing. And this was the only means by which they were being told they can and so a lamb was sold to them at two to three times the price. Astronomical uh, markup on these animals. And then the priest would take the one that had just been rejected, and you know what he would do with it? Take it, walk into the back, and then put it with those that had been pre-certified to sell to someone else. That was the type of financial corruption. This is why. Jesus went into that uh, temple and cleaned out the money changers. He says, this will be a house of prayer, not, not of corruption or like of this. Peter says, don't do it for shameful gain. He's seen that too often. But eagerly, and that word eagerly means as a servant would serve with passion and love. Not domineering over those who you are in charge of, but being examples to the flock, leading them step by step as an example. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It was, a, it was a thinking that all of the leaders had at that time. And when the chief shepherd, that is Jesus, appears in his return, you'll receive as an elder an unfading crown of glory for being faithful to the service in which God has called you to. 
Likewise, he says to those who are younger, be subject to the elders, for they do carry authority, and they're meant to be mentors to you. And clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, well, Pastor, I still don't see how it totally applies to me. Well, let me tell you how it applies to you. One of the key reasons the Church of America is in such dire straits is because we have too many men who are pastors who think that they're CEOs. We have too many men who are pastors who think they're celebrities, traveling with an entourage of people and being swooned by the notoriety that they received as they come into any particular venue. I've been very concerned over the last decade about the celebrity pastor. And you see it now to its nth degree, where more attention is given to the pastor. And there are even situations where a man who is biblically unqualified to serve as an elder remains a teaching pastor within the church simply to retain the people in coming and coming back so the generosity of giving continues within that church. That's a tragedy. Absolute tragedy. The church is not a business. It's not an organization. It's an organism that grows naturally. We need more shepherds. We don't need any more CEOs. We need more humility and less pride of a celebrity. And when you see pastors who conduct themselves in that way, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute joy. I've had the privilege of having pastors like that. Pastors of very large churches who conduct themselves in such a humble way who see themselves as a servant of Jesus Christ, who see themselves as simply there to love and to feed the sheep. And it's an incredible thing to see. And this is where you come in. Because you don't have to be subjected to the tyrannical approach that some of these CEO pastors have. It's my way or the highway. Really where the board of elders can't even contain them anymore because of the large personality in which they've become. Or those who have become the celebrity and it becomes all about them. You don't have to be subjected to that. For God here states to us very clearly what you should be looking for in a pastor. Now, trust me, the size of the church is irrelevant. You can have a man who thinks he's a CEO or a celebrity with a church of 60 people. And you can have a very large church that has a very godly, humble man leading and teaching and feeding those people. It's the character and the nature of the pastor himself that must be looked at. And it is this that he indicates here in our text. He wants them to know how they should minister to the people and how the people should react to their authority. But then we come to the issue of humility, which will carry us on into verse 6. He says, likewise, in verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders and clothe all of you 
with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There is no doubt that pride divides. Pride destroys. Satan fell because of pride. Pride in the body of Christ is one of the key elements that is dividing the body of Christ today. But many do not understand how humility is obtained and then maintained. First of all, to act in humility is a choice that we can make. Notice how many times the New Testament talks about clothe yourself, walk in humility. It is a choice that we can make to act pridefully or to act in humility. But then if we act in humility, how do we know that we are truly acting in humility? How is that humility cultivated within us? Humility is, is arrived at when we have a proper understanding of God and a proper understanding of who we are in the presence of God. Those who have experienced the presence of God throughout the Bible have always walked away in humility. As Isaiah said, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter himself, when the Lord came upon him, said, I am not worthy for you to be here with me on this boat. The act of humility is something that is found when we have a proper perspective of ourselves within the light of God. So how do we obtain that light of God? Number one, through his word. As we read the word of God, we quickly understand his majesty, his holiness. We quickly understand his character. And we quickly understand as a result of that who we are, fallen individuals stained by sin in desperate need of a savior that's only found in Jesus Christ. That brings about a humility that cannot be discovered in any other way. It is a humility that Peter learned himself if you watch his progression, his, his time with the Lord. And undoubtedly, after denying the Lord three times and then being asked three times by the Lord, do you love me? Guess what was instilled? Humility. And then after Pentecost, when he was uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, which you and I now retain as believers in Jesus Christ, he was a different man. That's true humility. Humility is not simply just self-denial. For false humility can attract just as much as attention onto yourself as pride. But true humility is understanding who we are in the presence of a holy God. And God says he opposes the proud. Some of your translation says that he resists the proud. But what does he do for those who are humble? He gives grace. I don't know about you, but I need the grace of God every single day. I need the grace of God to cease my hitting of the alarm after the 11th time. The grace of God to get up and out of the bed. The grace of God to get to the uh, other side of the house and so forth. I, I just need the grace of God, especially as I get old. I need the grace of God. One of the things that will happen as you grow in the Lord, you'll realize how much that you are in need of the grace of God. But he resists the proud. But the Bible says that he'll lavish those who humble themselves. And in verse 6, humble yourselves. Again, a directive that we can choose to follow. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. This is a phrase that Jewish people use to describe submitting yourself to the discipline and the direction of the Lord. To position yourself in a humble manner, therefore under the mighty hand of God, you were submitting unto God. We used to use this term in Christianity all the time. I wish we would use it some more. It is the word surrender. It is when you surrender to the direction and to the discipline of the Lord. It is that moment where you say, not my will, but your will be done. It's that moment that you come to that epiphany and realize that God knows what's best for you. It is that moment that you are now willing to say, Lord, take all of me. That moment that Paul say, states that when in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we lay ourselves before the Lord as a living sacrifice before him. That's what he's getting to here in this phrase, that you would submit to the direction, that you would submit to the discipline of the Lord. And in the wake of doing so, whatever cares you have, whatever anxieties you have as an individual, whatever worries trouble you to the point that keep you up at night, whatever you are challenged with that is causing you to fret or to worry, he then says, if you will humble yourself and you will allow my hand to guide you and to direct you and to discipline you. As a result of that, in doing so, cast all of those things on to me. Cast them all. It was the word that was used for an individual that would ride into Jerusalem, a person of power and prominence that would be honored by those casting flowers or wreaths or uh, whatever it may be before them to acknowledge who they are. He's saying now, instead of, you know, casting those wreaths and those flowers, cast your cares. You know why? Cast your worries. Cast your anxieties. You know why? Because he cares for you. If you're going to submit yourself to me, I'm going to take care of you because I love you. I died for you. You are my child. So whatever is troubling your heart, whatever fear is gripping you and paralyzing you, cast it upon me and I will take it because I care for you. And I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll always walk with you because I am that good shepherd, he says. He's actually quoting the psalm, Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you and he will never permit the righteous to be moved. I love what William MacDonald wrote in his commentary. He said, worry is unnecessary. There is no need for us to bear the burdens when he is willing and able to bear them for us. Worry is futile. It, ha it hasn't solved a problem yet. And more importantly, worry is sin, he said. He says, a preacher once said, worry is sin because it denies the wisdom of God 
It says that he does not know in what he is doing. It denies the love of God. It says that he does not care. And it denies the power of God. It says that he is not able to deliver me from whatever is causing me to worry. He says that's something to really think about, isn't it? And God is saying that if you will surrender yourself to me today, and you will humble yourself before me in due time, he says, I will exalt you. But in the meantime, whatever troubles you, whatever worries you, whatever causes you great fear, cast it to me. Because I care for you. That's our God. And at a time in which we live today, we need to hear those words more than ever, don't we? After watching the images of last Sunday, I just went before the Lord and said, Lord, I don't know how to feel about this stuff anymore, Lord. He says, cast it to me. Oh, Lord, I'm so worried about my daughter growing up and becoming an adult. What's society going to look like when she is an adult if it looks like this now? Cast it to me, he said. Lord, I, I don't know how to prepare and to minister to your people any better than I am already doing to prepare them for the difficulties that still may lay ahead. He says, cast it to me. Because he can give you the peace that surpasses understanding, can't he? He can give you the joy that isn't based upon our circumstances, but it is based on our relationship with him. He can take those anxieties as you approach him in prayer and he can guard your hearts and mind. He is the one that can see you through and give you the wisdom of his word at those moments that he knows that you need to hear these things at that specific time. Only he can do that. So he invites you today to cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. If you will humble yourself under the mighty weight of his hand, if you will do that, you have the privilege of casting these cares upon him. And then he goes on in verse 8. In this beautiful promise that he has given us, and this invitation that leads us to cast these things upon him, he warns us in verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, which is clear thinking, self-disciplined, and be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As we continue to naturalize the world around us and Christianity and continue to deny the spiritual world, we are allowing Satan one of the greatest footholds in the Christian community. Many today do not believe that Satan is actually real. I will tell you he is real. And he's up to no good. And he has lost the war because of the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus. And he now, waiting in an abided time, he is now conducting warfare battles each and every day with, against Christians here in this world to, uh, to hinder them from proclaiming 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is real, spiritual warfare is real, and it's something that we must acknowledge as Christians. Paul says, let us prepare ourselves for this warfare by taking on the whole armor of God. Here, Peter calls him an adversary. Interesting word in the Greek, if I may. It is one who brings a lawsuit against another. And I believe the imagery that Peter is creating there is that each and every time a Christian is persecuted for the faith and is required or forced to try to deny the Lord Jesus Christ, it is at that moment that they are in a trial and they will either glorify God to maybe at the expense of their own life or they will deny Christ and live temporarily here on this earth. But either way, a verdict has been rendered that either God is real or God is not real and is worth denying. That is the way Satan approaches us as our adversary, one who comes against us in this, in this way. And then he uses this imagery of a lion. Now, the lion of the tribe of Judah is who? Jesus. So why would Peter use this, this symbology for Satan? Well, Peter is in Rome right now. And in Rome in 63 AD, guess what began in the Colosseum? As Christians were placed there in the center of the Colosseum, lions were then released. And they would devour the Christians. One writer, historian, says that the blood of the Christians stained the rocks of the inner walls of the Colosseum due to the savagery in which they were handled by these lions. And to create that conscientious understanding and, and fear of Satan, he uses this language. This is the manner in which Satan is coming after you. But, look at what he says in verse 9. We are not defenseless. We are not powerless. We have the ability to stand and to resist the devil. Let's not give him too much credit, all right? We can resist him. And as James says, he will flee from us. And the manner in which we resist him is by standing firm in our faith. As we stated, the belief, the faith, the trust in our God. What will cause me to stand against the wiles of the devil through the temptation in which he levels against me in the moment of persecution in which he tries to stumble me is by resting in my faith in Jesus Christ. And that is specifically resting in God and in my Savior, Jesus, specifically. And I am then able to resist him. And when I do so, a promise is made is that he will flee from us. So guys, let's not walk around like we're wimps, all right? Satan comes after you. Just remind him who your, who your dad is, okay? Do I rebuke the devil? No, I don't rebuke the devil. I let my dad do that. Let Jesus rebuke him. Jesus defeated him, defanged him at the cross. And Satan may try to gum you to death, but 
He is powerless if we will resist him by standing firm in our faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering, it wasn't just unique to these people, but was happening to the suffering of the brotherhood throughout the world. They were not alone in this suffering. They were not alone in this persecution. And after you had suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He himself, four things, notice here. He will restore you. That means perfect you, bring you back to the image that you were once created in. He will confirm you, which means that he will give you a stability that you have never had before. And number three, he will strengthen you. He will create in you a resolve that will allow you to resist. And number four, he will establish you. He will set us up on firm foundations that we shall not be toppled. And the end of all of that will culminate the moment we enter into the glory of heaven and to be with him for all eternity. But as we walk through this earth, as we experience suffering, as we cast our cares upon him, and as Satan comes at us as an adversary, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may desire, uh, devour, Christ is restoring us in the midst of it all. Christ has confirmed us, creating us, giving us a stability, us standing on the rock and weathering the storms of life. He's given us a strength, a resolve that surpasses our own personal ability, but is only gained through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he establishes you. He settles us and allows us to stand strong at that moment if we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. As Peter now closes... By Salvanius, a faithful brother, I have regarded him as I have regarded him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And now stand firm in it. And she who is at Babylon, that is fellow believers, Babylon here is a reference for Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark. This is John Mark, who the gospel of Mark was written by. He calls him my son, that is, son in the faith. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Some things are cultural. They don't need to be continued today. I don't think you want us greeting everyone with a kiss here, do you? Especially during cold and flu season. We we ixnay that, okay? But peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. What a letter. I hope it's encouraged you. And as we close today, I'd just like to take a moment. I did this because I know a number of you are going through some real difficulties in your life. Being medical, being financial, being suffering unjustly in one way or another. Some of you have had great difficulties with family members and so forth. I wanted to read this letter, give you this letter to encourage you to stand in those times of suffering. 
They're not an obstacle to your happiness. They are an opportunity for God to work in you and through you for his glory. What challenges you today? What are you worried about today? What anxieties do you have? God says, cast those upon me. Submit yourself to me, to my leading, my discipline. Humble yourself and I will exalt you in due time. But whatever cares you have, whatever's troubling you so deeply, God says, you don't have to weather it alone. I am here with you. Cast it upon me. If it's too heavy for you, I will carry it for you. And he demonstrated that by carrying the cross for us. We couldn't do that. We couldn't save ourselves. So God saved us through Christ. He carried a cross that you and I could never bear. That was the cross that weighted, was weighted with the sins of the world. He's done that for us. And now he goes one step further. He goes, I love you. I'm your father in heaven. I love you. So you're a prince and a princess in the kingdom of God. And if there's something worrying you, if there's something troubling you, if you're fearful, come to me, he says. Come to me and let me encourage you. Let me give you that peace that surpasses all understanding. Let me fill your heart with the joy of the Lord. Let me remind you of how much you are loved by him. And some of you may be struggling today. So what I'm going to do for this last time, and we don't do this very often, as Chris is leading us in this last song, as we're worshiping as a church, if you need prayer this morning, I'm just going to stand right down here, and you can come, and we will quietly pray. I'll have Brian mute the mic, and we'll just pray together. Because I don't want to leave you feeling that you're alone. I'm not your chief shepherd, but I am your shepherd here at this church. And if I can help you, if I can assist you, if I can be there for you physically, I want to do so as your pastor because I love you. And I know God loves you even more, and he always reminds me of that. If you need him today, if you need some encouragement today, I'm going to be right here. You just come on up as Chris is leading us in this last song, and we'll pray together.